Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu trabajar en la panadería, pero yo quería pues ofrecer algo diferente, ¿no? Ingredientes pues más sanos, porque pues acá en nuestras comunidades el alimento diario es el pan. Entonces dije, bueno, ¿por qué no? no... My name is Martina Julieta Castellanos López. I'm from Asunción, Nochisclan, Oaxaca, which is a town that is located in the lower Mixteca, Nochisclan. Means land of the cochineal. Nochisclan is the main entrance to the Mixteca. I personally define myself as a person with values, with principles, and with a great faith. I value my roots and my culture very much. That is why I have always liked to rescue and value all the customs and traditions of my ancestors. I opened my bakery in March 2020. Originally, my idea was not to open a bakery, but another type of business where I could provide good sources of nutrition to people. But my mother is from a nearby community called San Isidro Jaltepec. There is a bakery that was closed for many years, so I said, okay, why not ask the community to give me that bakery and start using it? The community agreed, so I started working in the bakery, but I wanted to offer something different. Ingredients that are healthier, because here in our communities, the daily food is bread. So I said, why not offer a more nutritious bread? Not a bread that makes you fat, not a bread that gives you problems to those who are celiac, not a bread that produces obesity, but a different bread, a bread with high nutritional value, and a bread that I could take ingredients from my locality. My favorite item is the conchas, because in the bakery, conchas can never not be on the menu. There are different sizes, big ones, small ones, different flavors, different colors, and why not offer some delicious amaranth conchas, right? That would have a high nutritional value. Above all, something very important that I want to teach to my community 
as I mentioned before, tea, well, tea healthy. Tea products are breads with natural ingredients. Why not use recipes that are from our community, that are local, that are 100% organic? That way we can support our local economy. Welcome back to Point of Origin. On today's episode, we're talking about a global movement of whole grains. And that intro you just heard was Martina Julieta Castellanos Lopez and her daughter, Carmen Reyes, from Rincón de la Grana Bakery in Oaxaca, Mexico. Bread is the most widely consumed food in the world. Not only has it provided nutritional sustenance for international communities well over the millennia, but in many ways it represents the center of culinary and communal life. But over time, the contents of the bread we eat has been wildly disconnected from the wheat and grains of our ancestors. Today, we're looking at why that is, how it came to be, and the agrarian shift that has ensued. We're chatting with journalist and grain researcher, plus amateur baker, Simon Thibault in Halifax, Canada. Then we go to Southern Italy, to Puglia, where Leo Petruccelli is reviving his grandparents' farm using ancient grains. And finally, in Washington, D.C., we chat with Jonathan Bethany, baker and owner of Salu Bakery, who uses grains like millet and sorghum on his menu. Today's guests are focusing on recentering whole wheat and ancient grains in their natural form and moving beyond the standardized, the prepackaged, and the painfully uniform industrial grains. Today on Point of Origin, we're going beyond the wheat. Types of grains that can be milled and be used in baking. I mean, you have everything from buckwheat to emmer to rye. To um, my name is Simon Tebow. I'm a uh, journalist and food writer and author and editor. I'm based out of Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. And uh, grains have become the rabbit hole of my life over the past two and a half years. You have spring wheats and winter wheats. You have red wheats and white wheats. I am friends with a Canadian food writer named Naomi Duguid, and she said, you need to come and meet Dawn. And I had heard of Dawn, the baker. So I go and I see this table and there's Dawn with her daughter, Evelyn. The name of the company is Evelyn's Crackers. And I'm just standing there and there's like stuff that you expect to see at anybody's table, you know, like there's pastries and pies and breads and like the usual like uh loaves of rye and loaves of a few of the things i'm like okay sure uh and then i decided to try um one of her brownies so a brownie is pretty like nondescript they're lovely things to have on occasion and uh this was a 100 buckwheat flour cardamom brownie but at that initial moment when i bought it i was buying it to be polite at the time would have considered myself a competent home baker. Like I would have been the guy, like I'd made my sourdoughs, but everything was all white flour all the time. And the times I tried to make anything with whole grains flour or whole wheat flours, it never turned out right. And it was just this weird thing. I'm like, ugh, this is not worth my time. And then I bit into this thing and I was like, like I just kind of went, mm. and it was this delirious kind of thing. And, uh, and it wasn't just like, okay, cardamom and chocolate are amazing, first of all. But I mean, beyond that, the texture of this, it was like, what is this texture? And because it was soft, 
and pillowy. Most of us in North America, when we think of whole grains, we think of things, we hear the, those words and we think dense. We think unpalatable. We think the loaf of bread that can be used as a doorstop. You know what I mean? And this was none of those things. This was luxuriant. This was beautiful. The journalist in me and the writer in me went, wait a minute, like, how did she do this? How did she do this? What is necessary to get to this point where the preconceived notion we have of what whole grain baking can be versus this platonic ideal, which is achievable. What is that? And it just started from there. And from there, I have been starting research on this for two, two and a half years now. And uh, I have gone across North America for the first time in my life. I went to California to meet with uh, a miller in Pasadena named Nam Kohler. She runs Grist and Toll, which is this wonderful urban uh, mill. I went up to Washington State, to Washington State's campus uh, in Burlington, where they have the bread lab where Dr. Stephen Jones is doing all kinds of work over there. I went to Montreal to another grain conference to hear from women and men from around the world talking about grains. And the further I dig into it, the further I keep seeing how grains are emblematic of every single thing that has happened in food production over the past two to 300 years and the huge amount of erasure that has happened in terms of ecological, economic, cultural and culinary advantages and disadvantages that we now experience as eaters. So what you're saying is because of the ways in which the food system has been industrialized, that I guess flour is a severe example of how we've lost touch with our food. With apples, for instance, we can name multiple varieties or we can name multiple varieties of vegetables and yet we can't do that with wheat. So in this hyper processing of wheat, not only are we losing nutritional value, but we're also losing, as you pointed out, the cultural value and the loss of that knowledge. Well, let me give you a pretty easy scenario. You're going to go into a grocery store and you're going to go and buy flour. Okay. So you will find all purpose white flour, bleached or unbleached, doesn't matter in this scenario. You're going to take that flour home. You have a general, before you even buy it, you have an estimation of how much this is going to cost you. You have an estimation of how long it's going to last in your household. You have an estimation of how it's going to behave, how it's going to taste, all of these things. How did we get here? How did we take what is a living thing, the same way that apples and like other things that we grow in the ground or even like varietals of animals that we raise for food production? How did we get to this uniformity of experience that anybody can take this and use it and know what to expect and have a sense of what is what it's worth to them in terms of time and money and effort and who gets to gauge what that is worth who gets to gauge all of those things and that was the thing that kind of made me go wait a minute like what is this and the thing is that that system that makes that happen, that creates that ubiquity, this homogeneity within baking and within access to food and all of the things that brings it to play, everything from food security, which we experienced no matter who you are in North America or even like throughout most of Western Europe, when COVID hit, 
baking shelves were decimated. <laughs> and all of a sudden we were like, <gasps> and I kept on having conversations with people who were stocking the shelves and they're saying, people are starting to understand now, like how food distribution <laughs> works. And I mean, from, from a certain perspective, the whole thing of like that flour, you know, it's going to last a year, roughly speaking, like it's baking qualities will not be impacted in the first year of that thing being out there. So, you know, you've got a good amount of time, but, that was this kind of like someone's rattling the cage of the food system right now and it's a disease and why because you don't know where that was milled you don't know how long that's been on that shelf you don't know how long that was in a truck you don't know how long that was in a in a storage facility we wheat and grains are the most whitewashed arguably one of the most whitewashed foods out there when it comes to understanding the procedures necessary to feed us as human beings and as a society. I guess the more crass and cynical part of me feels like we shouldn't really be surprised that industrial food producers are more willing to discard the parts of the grain or the wheat that are more expensive to produce because obviously these companies are purely driven by profitability so how can we make people understand the urgency of really thinking more critically about this and maybe even acting in opposition to this system when, for instance, we don't really even know where to buy these flowers. We can't buy these flowers at the grocery store. So what are we as consumers supposed to do? It becomes this question of who gains access, not just to the ingredient, but who gains access to the money that plays into this, to more importantly, I would say the information that is necessary to use these products to the best degree possible. And when I say best, I don't mean just in baking at home. I mean in questions of social equity and inclusion and an understanding of the culinary and cultural background that are intrinsically linked to not only bringing these grains into North America, but also into how to use them and how those things fed generations of people. And now we are at a point where that information is nearly erased. And we cannot deny that the proliferation of, especially in a country like Canada, where I live, the proliferation of this uniformity and this homogeneity in terms of distribution and of flavor, or rather the distribution of no flavor, <laughs> also brought about a greater amount of food security because grain is a living thing. I have um, grains in my cupboard that have been there that I bought in California that are two years old and I have yet to mill them. They're fine. The second I mill them, they start to turn rancid. So I have six months to use that flour. That whole rancidity is basically what most of us believe that whole grains and whole grain flours taste of. And that's what we're accustomed to. And so the removal of that creates an ease and a facility that allowed generations of individuals to be able to bake at home in an affordable way. And we cannot deny that in the same way that like um, you can't deny that um, the progressions of canning food, of frozen foods, the development of supermarkets, all of these things emancipated people who cooked. And we're talking mostly about women here oftentimes women of color and especially in the southern united states in certain parts where grains are an even more part of it that this emancipation and this ease 
fostered huge changes in how we view um, the work necessary to create these things, whether it be baked goods or like making a, a, a roux in Louisiana or if we're making biscuits. I am not anti-white flour. I've been baking for the past two to three years with whole grain flours and I had a huge learning curve. And I still bake with white flour on occasion, depending on what I'm making. Having said that, there are also other benefits, especially in a place like Canada, and where there are things such as the Wheat Board of Canada, which is a government body which helps ensure a arguably equitable or a fair pricing system for grain, which is a commodity. So let's say you are a person of enough means to pay, um, let's say, seven or eight dollars for a kilogram of buckwheat flour or $10 for a kilogram of locally milled and grown cornmeal. Great. Argument's sake, you're able to do that. You're going to take that home. What are you going to do with it? Do you know what to do with it? You don't. We have, because we don't have to anymore. We have lost, but that's the loss and, and the, that we have experienced as eaters. And I think that we have been robbed of this. I mean, I really do. And I think it's unfortunate. And I think we can have all the best of intentions and when it comes to the ecology and when it comes to the economics and the ethics of these things. But in the end, if we don't know how to use the product, we're SOL. Simon makes several critical points here. One is the erasure of knowledge surrounding grains. Whole wheat is actually flavorful and adds a depth and complexity to recipes, but we've pejoratively associated it as an unappealing health food or as a bread with a brick-like texture, which raises the question, once we've bought our grains, how do we know what to do with it? And how do we know what to bake? I think that baking at home specifically is a one of the most tentative and doable answers to understanding and using and respecting the work that goes into agriculture, the work that goes into milling, and the work that goes into providing food for people. Because baking at home is where most of us can learn how to use it. You can eat something from a professional baker and appreciate the work that goes into it uh, because you're experiencing flavor, you're experiencing texture in a context you never perhaps understood or knew. You could be even experiencing both of those things in completely new ways and in completely new cultural contexts. Um, you're eating rye in a Scandinavian uh either a dry like cracker style bread or something super dense and moist, or you're experiencing buckwheat in a croissant all of a sudden. You're like, how did they do this? But more than anything, we're, it's still about consumption and consumerism in, in that true way, not just consumption of eating, but consumption of product. And But that is the gateway to getting into understanding what is possible. Professionals can show you what is possible, but you at home we're the ones who buy the flour and bake things at home for ourselves out of joy or out of necessity. And to be able to gain access to that, to get back to that is the thing of like, how do we, I think home bakers are the, are the real way to get to this because a home baker is the one who spends the money to feed themselves. The home baker is the one who's going to do the work and see the value in the work. And I don't mean the esoteric idea of work, of what brought that to their table, the work of putting their hands in flour and playing with water and fats and flavors. And in doing that, there is 
a greater appreciation and a greater um, sense of satisfaction in being able to figure something out that you've never figured out before. Even if it's something as simple as how much fat or how much water or how much sugar or whatever I need to add to this to make it taste the best possible way so that I am being respectful of my time and of the time of everybody else down this food chain. Anytime we're disrupting or derailing the corporate food system, I think we're on the right track. So I'm with you there. But can you help us understand on a primary level when wheat is grown industrially, what is that process like from grain to consumer? And can you just walk us down the two distinct journeys from industrial grain into the final value added product like flour or bread? So to do the TLDR version of grain agriculture in North America, uh, basically after the war, after World War II, agriculture changed in North America in which we had a lot of people to feed and we wanted to feed them and we wanted to feed them in a way that, again, liberated workers to a certain degree uh, to be able to make more money or to work a little bit less. Or what do we need? We Well, we're going to put things into the ground. We're going to put um petrochemicals into the ground and then now especially we're putting pesticides into the ground whether you agree with the use of those things or not that's fine that's not what i'm interested in what i'm interested in is what happens and so for a farmer let's talk about the both the agriculture and the economics at once for a farmer to be able to make money to grow grain they have to plant lots of it the question of scale and the maintenance of that scale is incredibly difficult and incredibly high. Why? Because you have to grow it or raise it or rear it in a certain way. And that's a big way. And to do that, well, then you have a huge amount of land. Land is expensive. Gas is expensive to run the tractor or the mill or whatever else you're going through all of this. And so that means that the inputs that go into your land and when i say input i mean time i mean petrochemicals i mean water i mean whatever else is necessary to do this often denigrates and ruins the soil in and of itself we are now at a point where the amount of soil that is used to grow our food the topsoil for that is being destroyed What's also being distorted are the communities in which the, these grains are being grown. And what was it that changed that necessitated those higher volumes of wheat production? Was it a growing demand from the government, from the consumer, or was it just because we had to fill grocery store shelves? Money necessitates volume. More money, more volume, more grain, more bread on the shelves, more people eating uh, grain in whatever way possible that we can. Where can I insert? Like people always talk about corn being inserted everywhere. If you are someone who's gluten intolerant or a celiac and you look for something that doesn't have grain in it, you're <laughs> doing a lot of work. Um, and also because grain is a commodity, therefore it is traded in economic ways and so forth. All of these things link into it. And yet the dividends are mostly economic and the losses are agricultural and um, cultural as well in terms of how to grow these things. Because we have become so used to growing things in this very specific way that we're constantly losing the information that could have been brought there. 
I don't know if it's the answer, but an answer that is constantly coming up within grains is a very grassroots kind of look towards grains. And I will be completely honest and say, I don't know what is the right way yet. In Canada, for example, there's actually an organization, this really great group in Vancouver called Flowerist. And what it is, is they are the daughters of grain farmers or of the daughters of uh, people who grew up in grain regions. And they're like, we really want to highlight the work that these people are doing. And so they found specific farmers who are growing grain in very specific ways that are agriculturally sound and ecologically sound. They buy that grain whole, they send it, they ship it to Vancouver, and you as a consumer can buy that flour, have an idea of where that came from, and have it shipped to you anywhere in North America. So is that the way to do it? I'm not entirely sure because that helps one farmer and it has the same... It has the ethical footprint that I wanted to have, or the, but it doesn't necessarily always have the ecological one because shipping things costs money. And so it's a question of personal, because all of this all comes back again to personal responsibility. And that's the thing with the small scale allows you to see it is your personal responsibility, while large scale, it removes your responsibility from all of this. But also in terms of like um, that small scale in the grassroots thing that also happens within all of this have been conferences popping up across North America and even across the world. Um, like I said, there was the, the, the needing conference, uh, which happens in Maine and there is the grain gathering, which happens in Washington state. And then there is also, um, le goût du grain, le goût du grain or a taste for grain in Montreal. And there are grain conferences happening in uh in the uk and people are looking all over north america from small scale to large scale into like what can we do to ensure that our food security is safe but that we're still able to have a food experience that is worth our time from all points of view from flavor to agriculture love to eat grain carbs all that stuff but my body hated it um it wasn't until I came to Europe and I started I was in France and I was eating bread there and then I came to Leo's farm and I was introduced to ancient grains it wasn't so much the grain and the flour it was as it is I think the quality of the grains that we eat nowadays and it basically changed my whole world that's writer Mauricia Tiller talking about Leonardo Petrocelli from Zeletta di Brancia, a farm in Puglia, Italy. She came uh, to me and she was not eating uh, um, grain, uh, past and so on. But I say, you are in Italy, you have to eat this uh, stuff. <laughs> then she start little bit, little bit, and then uh, now she eat uh, and uh, she don't feel nothing, yeah. Leo is a multi-generational grain farmer, having received a master's degree in ecological farming. On his farm, he cultivates, harvests, and sells ancient grains like capelli, frazionetto, rischiola, saragola, faro monococo, sagale jumana, orzomondo, and maiorca. While reviving these grains on his grandparents' farm sounds romantic, this is by no means a popular endeavor in southern Italy. Eating the grains here 
I've had no issues. So then it made me question, like, maybe it's not grains. It's the quality of the grains versus industrialized, modern grains. So in a relatively short amount of time since the Green Revolution, almost all of Italy has gone on to this industrialized crop, as you refer to. So how does your fellow country person in Italy feel about the work that you're doing to maintain or revive these ancient grains? Do they think it's kind of strange or patriotic or are they excited that you're bringing back some of the local history? Yeah, it's, uh, in my area it's a little bit difficult because uh, the people in the south of Italy are a bit uh, with the um, close mind, uh, they are traditional. Uh, so at the start, uh, the people, uh, the other farmer were watching me uh, growing up this uh, Uh, big uh, grains because they, some of them they are uh, uh, tall like two meters uh, <laughs> in front of the, the the new one so they say what are you doing Leonardo uh, they produce so much uh, uh, this is not good uh, but I I continue in my way uh, <laughs> I continue in my way the people start to taste my flower to see And uh, they say to me now that, uh, Leonardo, you have uh, the reason. The, your flower is different than the, the flower that we buy in the supermarket. Uh, and uh, the taste, the smell of the bread is completely different. Mm. So, the, yeah, the, the other farmer see me like a crazy person. <laughs> yeah. That's when you know you're doing something good. Yeah. Abbiamo bisogno di contadini, di poeti, gente che sa fare il pane, che ama gli alberi. We need farmers and poets. We need people who know how to make bread. People who love trees and acknowledge a breeze. More than a year of growth, we need a year of attention. Attention to those who fall. Attention to the sun that rises and dies, to our kids as they grow. Attention to a simple street light, a chipped wall. Today, being revolutionary means reducing rather than adding to, slowing down rather than speeding up. It means seeing the value of silence, of light, Of fragility, of kindness. Alla fragilità, alla dolcezza. Franco Armenio. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It was the gluten-free era. I was seeing things from a dark side of, oh man, gluten-free, what am I, peddling poison? I didn't get into baking for this and... It's a terrible career, wheat, you know, it's just, it's not good for people. That's Jonathan Bethany. Jonathan is the co-owner and head baker of Salu Bakery in Washington, D.C. He's been on a journey of experimental grains and research, having worked at the Washington State University's bread lab with Dr. Stephen Jones, where he learned about the importance of plant variety, farming practices, fresh milling, and long fermentation all of which are essential to unlocking flavor and nutrition. In November 2017, Jonathan opened Selu with his wife, Jessica Aziz. Selu is the first bakery in Washington, D.C., operating its own mill. Well known at Selu are their 100% whole wheat croissants and millet chocolate chip cookies, which are emblematic of his style of baking, European bakery staples with freshly milled grains. Once I kind of shifted my internal world, all of a sudden I found myself mingling with folks that are like, oh, well, you don't have to bake like that. There's other ways to bake. You can use whole grains. You can use long fermentations. You know, wheat isn't bad. It's just how you've gone about it. You know, you have to take a, a fresh look at that. And then, bam, all of a sudden the bread lab opens up. And here I am as a resident baker in the bread lab and up in Washington State University in a cutting edge, you know, breeding program under Dr. Jones. As Jonathan explains, long fermentation is important for digestibility. Most bread in a plastic bag goes from flour to loaf in just a matter of hours. And in the process, the benefits of the pre-digestive period, where enzymes and microorganisms break down the grains into a state in which it's easier to absorb, are all lost. The benefits of soaking, sprouting, and fermenting grains to maximize nutritive value is something many cultures around the world have long known and practiced. And so at my time at the bread lab, um, you know, I really got into varietals and I really got into whole grain baking. Dr. Jones made me only bake with whole grains, working with Dan Barber, only whole grains. What are all the flavors we can get out of wheat? What are all the flavors we can get out of grains? Um, that turned me into a whole grain baker. I came uh, to D.C., to the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, I met 
some of the farmers I work with now, that really convinced me to open Salu because I'm like, these are farmers I can really work with and we can go through all the little changes together. We can take risks together. Um, that's when Heinz Tomet of Next Step Produce in Southern Maryland toured me in his fields, showed me buckwheat, millet, sorghum, uh, beans, barley, rye, you know, Finally, he takes me to the wheat and I'm like, okay, cool. How much uh, wheat can you sell me this year? And he's like, son, didn't you see everything that it took to get you this organic wheat? He's like, what about all these other things? So I'm like, oh man, what about all these other things? I want to ask you about the flower boom from the spring of this year, 2020. A lot of people were for the first time thinking about where their flower was coming from at a time when suddenly it was unavailable. I think many people were for the first time thinking differently about baking at home. Did you experience a different or renewed relationship to your customers in terms of their understanding and curiosity about the value of whole grain flour? Yeah, I ran out of uh, rye. I ran out of uh, many wheat varieties. Um, I struggled this year to keep up Mm -hmm. um, due to the boom. And it's what we wanted to happen. You know, I've wanted, I mean, I didn't want it to come, you know, riding on COVID-19 per se, but we, we needed something to, 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 to bring this awareness and this desire to um, seek healthier uh, foods and to seek, um, you know, cooking at home again. You know, I think there's the root cause that we can look to, which is unhealthy systems, unsustainable systems, and unhealthy eating. And these kind of tragedies uh, bring all that to light. Before we end, I wanted to go back to Simon, our esteemed journalist and amateur baker, and ask if he could share with us some advice to make the home baker in us all feel a little less intimidated and more empowered when baking with whole grains. I will say this, start small and be open, one. Two, think about what happens when you're baking with something. Let's stick with wheat. We're not going to go into buckwheats and rice and embers and uh, einkorn or even corn in of itself, just regular wheats. Okay, so like I said, you live in California, you get your hands on some Sonora. And let's say you don't know how well this was milled. You put it in your hands and it feels like regular whole wheat flour. What we know that bran is good for us and what does bran do? It absorbs in your gut, it absorbs lots of liquid. So remember that when you're putting liquid into your batter or your dough, you're gonna need a little extra water. Try 15 to 20% more water or 15 to 20% less flour in whatever you're baking that you've baked before. That's a good way to start. Um, whole grains, if you don't want to go at 100% whole grains, uh, add 50% to something and see what happens to a recipe that you know super well. And a quick anecdote is I was one time I was making, I had a friend over and I'm like, hey, I'm going to make a coffee cake. And I've made this coffee cake X number of times. 
and I've done it whole grain a whole bunch of times. And so I bake it and I'm talking to my friend and it comes out and I slice it up and I go, I forgot to add the sugar to my bake. <laughs> but I came to realize how much sugar do I actually need? Because it was still super flavorful. There was so much flavor in it. And I was like, how much sugar do I actually need in this thing? And I was like, I could reduce my sugar by 50% easily and still have a super tasty cake. And there was lots of sugar in the streusel on top. So that's fine. But it's this thing of like, you start to have these moments of like, what do I actually need? And that's the thing that happens in home baking, especially when you're playing with home grain, with whole grains, is you start to be like, what do I want? What do I want to play with? And I'm not depending so much on just the recipe. I'm using my senses, my hands, uh, my taste buds, or even like, I'll smell things in the kitchen and be like, you become much more comfortable in your kitchen and that kind of emancipation that comes, that kind of independence that comes in being able to feed yourself and feed yourself in more than just the ways you know, that's the thing that really gets home bakers excited. And that's the thing that I think can really truly lead people to understanding and making whole grains accessible because you become your own teacher in that kind of way, in a way that industrial food systems don't want you to be independent, don't want you to be to have a certain amount of um, brain trust or intelligence towards what you're putting in your own body. You know, there's a lot to take away from the episode, whether it's the role of gluten or gastronomy or the green revolution in what we eat today. But the benefits of whole grain eating are multifaceted just as the negative impacts are of not eating whole grains. Our taste buds have been bleached and so has our soil and our immunity. The whitewashing of our food is no more apparent in our industrial system than it is with wheat. And whether or not you believe the Green Revolution was a success, which probably depends on the metrics by which you define success, what it does allow is a fertile terrain of critique. What we do know is that any solution in feeding people that is rooted in agrochemical companies consolidating power and weakening biodiversity is not a long-term solution. As always, we are advocates for reimagining new systems, the ones that predate industrial solutions, as those solutions are only designed to respond to industrial problems. Maybe the system is the problem. And in that context, our solutions bring us closer to the outcomes rooted more in our imagination and less so in our limitations. I'd like to extend a tremendous thank you to all of our guests who helped make this episode possible. Martina Julieta Castellanos Lopez and her daughter Carmen Reyes from Rincón de la Grana Bakery in Oaxaca, Mexico, to journalist and author Simon Thibault in Nova Scotia, Canada, Leonardo Petricelli and writer Mauricia Tiller from Zaleta de Brancia in Puglia, Italy, and to Jonathan Bethany from Salu Bakery in Washington, D.C. You can learn more about this episode and our guest at whetstonemagazine.com backslash podcast or by following us on Instagram at whetstonemagazine. We'll be back next week with more from the world of food from around the world. I'm your host, Stephen Satterfield. Take it easy. Peace. 
We'd also like to thank our incredible podcast producer, Celine Glager. Celine, you are the best. To our editor and Whetstone partner and director of video, David Alexander in London. Appreciate you, Dave. Thanks to our Whetstone production intern, Quentin LeBeau. And last but not least, my business partner, Mel Shi, who makes all things at Whetstone possible. Thank you, Mel. We'd also like to thank our partners in production at iHeartRadio, to Gabrielle Collins, our supervising producer, and executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis. We'll be back next week with more from the world of food worldwide. Point of Origin listeners, as you know, rating and reviewing our podcast is the very best way for more people to find out about our very important work at Whetstone. So please, if you're able, we would really appreciate a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast that will help others like yourself find out about Point of Origin. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.